October 28, 2003. The sun is stormy and agitated. It releases one of the most powerful solar flares ever recorded. The flare shoots towards Earth, damaging some satellites and causing others to fail. GPS and communications are disrupted. Astronauts on the International Space Station are told to take cover, and airlines are advised to fly at lower latitudes to avoid exposing crew and passengers to the intense radiation. The solar flare travels beyond Earth, killing the Marie instrument on the Odyssey satellite orbiting Mars. Two rovers named Spirit and Opportunity were on their way towards Mars, scheduled to land soon. As they were engulfed by the solar flare, their star trackers failed, causing the spacecraft to lose attitude control. The spacecraft's computer, one engineer told me, was losing its mind. Flight engineers shut the computers down, fearing memory chips were damaged, not knowing if they could bring the mission back to life. a podcast of NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. I'm Leslie Mullen. The engineers got lucky that day. The computers came back on, and the rover's Spirit and Opportunity landed on Mars in January 2004, as planned. The story of the 2003 solar flare is just one example of the hair-raising challenges every mission to outer space faces. This season, I've been talking about the Mars InSight mission, which has had its share of overcoming obstacles and defying the odds. But it's not just the technology. The people who work on these missions have faced their own challenges and series of obstacles to get where they are today. Space missions, and the people who work on them, need to have grit. One person with this quality is Marlene Martinez Sunguard. She's in charge of the testbed for InSight. What is a testbed, you might ask? We have a team in the testbed whose job it is to make sure that we are able to run all of the sequences that we will run on Mars here on Earth. It's kind of like practice. Three instruments sitting on the InSight lander have to be placed on the ground on Mars. To do that, a robot arm will pick each instrument up. So at the end of the robotic arm, there's a little grapple that looks like a finger claw in an arcade game, basically. If you've ever tried to win a prize from the arcade claw game, you already know it's not as easy as it sounds. Who's in charge here? The claw. claw is our master. The claw chooses who will go and who will stay. This is the claw had a starring role in the movie Toy Story when Woody and Buzz Lightyear ended up in an arcade game filled with little green alien squeak toys. The claw, it moves. I have been chosen. Farewell, my friends. I go on to a better place. The goal for the robot claw in InSight is to hook on the instruments and then gently place each one in front of the lander on the Martian surface. This has never been done before, so Marlene's team practices the delicate operation on Earth again and again, perfecting each maneuver. But unlike the arcade game, 
They need to pick up that prize on a planet millions of miles away, where the very ground you stand on may handicap your efforts. There are scenarios where we sit down on a tilt, on a 15-degree tilt, for example, and so we'll build a 15-degree workspace in front of the lander, and then we'll set the instrument down on that 15-degree workspace. And, and then also the instruments have tethers. They have power and telemetry tethers so that we can get our data back from the instruments. And sometimes these tethers will overlap. As the robot arm is moving the instruments, what if their tethers get tangled up? What else might go wrong? By practicing every possibility, Marlene's team works to avoid any mishaps. Because millions of miles away, on another planet, a mishap can mean the end of the mission. We practice everything multiple times in multiple scenarios. So that's kind of what my job in the test bed is. Marlene's story begins back here on Earth in the state of Washington. I was born and raised in a small town in eastern Washington called Warden, like a jail warden. My grandparents were migrant farm workers. My parents were migrant farm workers. And so they just moved around the country a lot and settled on Warden, Washington, which has a lot of potatoes. At one time, I remember hearing a statistic where our county alone grew more potatoes than the state of Idaho. I started working in those potatoes when I was 13 years old. We would work every summer, and so the rule in my parents' house was that if you were in school, you didn't have to work. If you ever left school, you had to work, because they were forced to drop out of middle school and high school when they were young so that they could work to help support their families. So when I was 13, 14, and 15, I worked in the fields. I would wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning, be out in the field by 5, which is sunrise, and then work till about 3 in the afternoon. When I turned 16, I was old enough to work in a potato warehouse, which, oddly enough, was, I think, worse than working in the fields. Because in the warehouse, I had to stand at this conveyor belt as potatoes were coming down the line. I would just stand there for two hours at a time straight with extremely loud machinery around me just pulling weeds and rotten potatoes out of this like conveyor line. I did that for a couple weeks and my father's godmother was our supervisor and she would pull me off the line once a day to go do like a quality check on the boxes and so we would, I'd grab a box off a conveyor belt and I would count how many potatoes were in it and then I'd go back to the conveyor line about two weeks in, I got moved to the weighing. There was like a spot where the potatoes, as they were getting boxed, would get weighed. They needed to weigh 50 pounds, and then they could get glued, closed, and shipped off. And so my dad's godmother moved me there, I think, because she felt so bad for me. It was just like having a horrible time. And then one day, one of the boxes got stuck, and so I had to hit the emergency stop button on my part of the the potato boxing and so the mechanic came around and he was running to the wrong spot and so he said no 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 no, it's over there and so he kind of looked at me funny and then went to go fix the problem he came back later and he just said you speak English and I said yeah I was born and raised here in the United States and he's like okay I need you to do inventory so I was like okay and so then I got moved to inventory and I spent the rest of the summer doing inventory in this extremely cold refrigerated warehouse but at least I wasn't standing sorting the potatoes so I always consider that the fastest um, promotions I ever got. If you go to the website cityofwarden.org you'll see beautiful panoramic photographs of farmland. Warden's population is mostly Hispanic, and some families trace their heritage as far back as the early Spanish explorers. 
But for many in this community, including Marlene, life is divided between two countries. And that has presented unique challenges for her life. I spent about nine months of my childhood each year there in Warden, Washington. The other three months of my childhood I spent in a small town called Los Angeles uh, in Mexico in the state of Nuevo León. It's up north, kind of by the Texas border. And so we would go there every November and then come back to the States about end of January, early February. So when my parents would take us out of school for three months at a time, we had to prove that we were enrolled somewhere. And so we would enroll in school in Mexico. But the problem with that was that our parents wanted us to keep up with the schools in the United States. And there was a lot of us from town. Warden is a very large agricultural migrant community. And so every winter, half the school would leave. And so the teachers knew that you needed to prepare all of your lesson plans for the months of November through February ahead of time because all the kids were going to be leaving and they needed to take all their homework with them. Moving back and forth was, was fun. Five or six families from Morden went down to Mexico at the same time. And so we would make our suburban into like this big bed because we didn't have enough room for three months of luggage. And so what we would do is just loosely, we'd put all the clothes into the footwells of everything, and then we would cover it with a big blanket, and then we would make sure that we had all of our seatbelts were accessible because we knew we still had to be wearing our seatbelts most of the time, and my dad installed this little AC-DC converted television with like the smallest little VCR, and we just watched movies the whole way down, and all of our cousins had convertible vans, I think is what they were called. Everyone would just kind of like rotate from vehicle to vehicle, just depending on who was playing what movie, what day. You know, we'd stop for breakfast and then someone would say, oh, we're gonna watch um, Casper. And so we would all go to that van. It took us two and a half days to drive down straight. They'd drive through the night. Our parents would just keep rotating in and out. And, and then in Mexico, our town in Mexico, it's more like a ranch, just a bunch of houses kind of in one centralized place. There were so many small towns around it. The bus would come and pick up all the kids from the surrounding towns and bus them to a town called Los Ramones. The bus would pick us up at five in the morning and then we would get to school at eight in the morning. And because we're, you know, we're the first ones picked up because we we're the farthest away. And then we would go to class until about noon. We would usually leave um, Los Ramones at about 12.30, 1 o'clock, and we'd get home about 3.30 in the afternoon. And then we would go to our rooms and get all of our American homework out, and we'd do a few chapters, and then we could go out and play. <laughs> it was a very interesting learning experience in that I learned how to teach myself a lot. Just going to school in Mexico was the other, I guess, hard part in the sense that I, I understand Spanish pretty well. I understand conversational Spanish perfectly. I don't understand a lot of things about, you know, um, cellular biology <laughs> in Spanish. So when they're talking about meiosis and mitosis and cell splitting in Spanish, I had no idea what they were talking about. And so things like that, where I remember sitting in class and just writing everything down and then going home and asking my dad what it all meant. <laughs> um, and that's how I just got through school in Mexico is a lot of writing stuff down and translating once I got home. So here's a girl trying to excel in school in both the U.S. and Mexico, working under the hot summer sun in the potato fields or in the loud and tedious potato warehouse. She also worked for a time cleaning hotel rooms. This is not the easiest life. And to add to the challenge, 
Marlene has Tourette syndrome. Tourette syndrome is a neurological disorder that manifests itself in tics, motor tics and vocal tics. So, for example, the listeners can't see mine because most of my tics are all uh, motor tics. So they're in my face, they're in my hands. Um, I scrunch my nose, I blink my eye, I kind of rub my fingers together. Um, When I was a freshman in high school, I used to repeat a lot of the words that I said. So it was iffy. I would repeat either the last word of the sentence I just said, or I would repeat the entire sentence, depending on how long it was. Tourette syndrome, the motor tics um, can just vary a lot, but the vocal tics are usually in three categories. One is palilalia, which I had, which is the echoing of your own words. There's echolalia, which is the echoing of other people's words. And then there's coprolalia, which is the uttering of inappropriate words. <laughs> so that's a lot of what the media picks up. Um, the people who curse out loud. And so when I was growing up, I I knew there was something different. I knew that I had these things that I couldn't control. And my mom was always telling me that I needed to stop. And I couldn't control and I couldn't stop. And I didn't know why. And I just kind of figured it was just something that was wrong with me. And I just didn't know what it was. And so my senior year of high school, I was reading my sister's uh, teen magazine, and Nev Campbell had written this essay about how she was um, trying to spread awareness because her brother had Tourette syndrome. She just goes on and she's describing all of his tics and all of the symptoms that he displayed. And it was, I remember just reading them. I was like, oh, I do that one. It's like, oh, yeah. And he blinked his eyes. I was like, oh, I do that one. And he cleared his throat. And I thought, I did that one too. And, I did, and he, as she's naming all these different tics, I was like, I do all of these. And so I remember just having this epiphany. I was like, oh my God, I have Tourette syndrome. That's what it's called. And so I went downstairs and I was like, mom, I have Tourette syndrome. And she was like, yeah, that's what the doctor said when you were little. I was like, what? Why didn't you tell me? And she just said, well, I didn't think you needed to know. I don't know if it would have made a difference had I known earlier, but once I knew what it was, it was kind of like, okay, so it has a name. Other people have it. I'm not crazy. There's nothing too wrong with me. There's still something wrong with me, but at least it's something that other people have. When I was about 25 years old, I thought, I wonder if there's a camp for kids with Tourette's syndrome. And so I just Googled Tourette camp and I found this Tourette's camp that is held up in northern Illinois, just north of Chicago. It's called Tourette Camp USA. And so I went to their website and I saw that there was staff applications. And so I applied to volunteer as a staff member and my first summer was 2009, and I went, and I just met all of these people with Tourette syndrome. And up to this time, I hadn't met anyone else with Tourette syndrome. I just remember thinking, this is fantastic. <laughs> like, I love these people. Everyone has so many different tics. And, like, I remember looking at these little kids walking in, and they were blinking their eyes and, you know, scrunching their nose or doing, like, this little weird head tick that I did. And I was like, oh, my God, that was me when I was eight. <laughs> and so I was like, I can help these kids. I've just had such a fun time every year going back that, um, I'm now the assistant camp director. I'm a member of the board of directors for Tourette's and Camping Organization. And so it's just been a lot of fun and a really good experience being able to see these kids come in and not only help them with coping mechanisms and talk about Tourette's syndrome, but also tell them what I do. Talk to them about the space program and talk to them about being an engineer and how Tourette's syndrome in and of itself doesn't hold you back intellectually. Our brains work just like everyone else's and they have the capacity to hold a lot of information just like everyone else. Tourette syndrome shouldn't be something that you 
should expect to hold you back from doing anything you want to in the world. Ever since she was young, Marlene's ambitions have been sky high. Long before the movie The Martian showed us how to grow potatoes on Mars, Marlene gazed up at the bright stars from the potato fields of Washington and dreamed of one day going into space. And when I was five, I told my mom I was going to be an astronaut. When I was in middle school, I won an essay contest at the state of Washington, the Migrant Education Foundation. They had a competition where you could write an essay about why you wanted to go to space camp. They selected three students out of the state of Washington, and I was one of the winners. And so the summer of 1997, I went to the U.S. Space Academy in Huntsville, Alabama, and trained to be an astronaut for an entire week. And I remember coming back from that experience in middle school and just having like this renewed idea and this like renewed motivation to want to do something with the space program because it was so exciting. And so I took all the math classes our high school offered. I took all the science classes. I did pageants in high school. So I won the town junior mess pageant my senior year of high school and junior year of high school, sorry. And I remember I was getting ready to go to the state competition and there was this application for the NASA Space Grant Scholarship. And so I was applying for it and it was due the Friday that I was gonna be at the state competition. All the paper was done, it just needed to get post-stamped by a certain date. My mom had been telling me to do it before I left and I kept forgetting, I kept forgetting, so finally, the morning we're leaving to the state competition, she leaves the house to go put everything in the car, and I run into my room, grab all the paperwork, write a note to my mom, like, Mom, can you postmark this by January 15th? I set it on her bed, because <laughs> I didn't want to get in trouble. And so she um, she takes me to Pullman, Washington, where the state competition was, uh, drops me off for the week, talks to her a couple days later on the phone. She's like, I mailed out your application. I was like, thanks, Mom. <laughs> Come, you know, mid-February, I get a phone call from the Space Grant Office at the University of Washington. They say, oh, you're a finalist. We'd like you to come in for an interview. So I said, great. Do you have to go to the University of Washington to get this scholarship? And they said, yes. I said, oh, <laughs> I didn't apply to the University of Washington. I went to my high school guidance counselor the next day, and I said, I got this you know, opportunity to get this scholarship. I just didn't apply to UW. My heart was set on Gonzaga University since I was like in middle school. And so my guidance counselor called the University of Washington and she just kept calling admission counselors until she could find one that was willing to accept a late application. And so they said, drop off your application with this specific woman. She's willing to take it, but you have to hand deliver it. So I said, okay, I'll be there March 1st. And then February 28th of 2001 was the big Seattle earthquake. Good evening. Here's the newest information on the earthquake just into our newsroom. The 6.8 quake struck at 10.54 this morning. It was centered 11 miles northeast of Olympia. It was felt as far away as Whistler in British Columbia, Portland, Oregon, even Salt Lake City, Utah. More than 200 people have been injured, most in King County. Some of the wounded are still trickling into emergency rooms. And many people are homeless tonight. Their apartments and houses damaged beyond safety. Hundreds of buildings are so also So an earthquake hits Seattle. I show up the next day. The whole like campus is shut down. The registrar's office, where the admissions office is, is closed. And so I go in for my interview and I tell them, I said, I need to hand deliver this application to this specific woman at admissions. And so they offered to do it for me, thankfully, and came home that night. A car broke down. 
the car wouldn't come out of fourth gear. This <laughs> was just the worst day. <laughs> so we end up at the top of Snoqualmie Pass with a broken down car because it was snowing and there was a blizzard and the car wouldn't come out of fourth gear. And so we had to get a tow truck and sleep at a hotel and then finally made it home. So April, May rolls around and I get three envelopes. The first one I open says that I got the NASA Space Grant Scholarship and I was so excited. And then the second one I open mentioned full ride, but I didn't quite understand it. So I just put it to the side, opened the third one. That was my admission to University of Washington, which got me really excited. But then I kind of went back to the other one and I was like, how do I apply for this? I really want it. So I called the registrar's office at the University of Washington and I was like, what's this Costco scholarship? This sounds really exciting. How do I apply? And they're like, no, you won it. Your application to the University of Washington was your application to the scholarship. We're giving you $52,000 going to the University of Washington. So that pretty much sealed the deal. Marlene embraced this opportunity and studied aerospace engineering in college. That brought her one step closer to her dream of working on missions to space. I didn't want to go back and work in the fields or clean hotel rooms. And I thought if I could get a, an internship, then I don't have to do all these other crazy jobs. I worked at the University of Toledo my freshman summer, and then I worked at the University of Wisconsin my sophomore summer. And so when my junior summer was rolling around, the NASA Space Grant office was they were going to pay for two students to come to JPL and work for the summer. And so I sent in my application, and then I spent the next 10 weeks of the summer as the propulsion lead for a mission architecture group. And then the following summer, I worked under Matt Gollenbeck, who is our landing site selection uh, lead here on the InSight program. He hired me into the geology group my second summer here at GPL, and so I counted rocks for an entire summer for Matt. They were on Mars, so it was kind of cool. So what I was doing that summer was trying to find the probability of Phoenix hitting a boulder upon landing. The Phoenix mission in 2008 was a NASA lander very similar in design to InSight. It landed near the North Pole of Mars. That lander scooped up soil and analyzed the chemical composition. And so that experience comes into my InSight experience in the sense that Whenever we have to set up the workspace, Matt Gollenbeck has given a probability of how many rocks or boulders or any type of geological structure we're expecting to see. And so I can set up the workspace with the idea of, of knowing what Matt means when he says a 10% coverage of rocks. I'm like, oh, that's not a lot. Okay. Marlene had moved beyond counting potatoes to counting rocks on Mars. But even after two internships at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, also known as JPL, it wasn't a straight shot to getting a job here. When she graduated from college, she applied to several aerospace companies and ended up at Lockheed Martin. She worked there for a decade. She met her husband at Lockheed. They had a child. Her husband had worked on the InSight mission years before, and eventually they both ended up back at JPL. As Marlene told us earlier, she's the testbed lead for NASA's InSight mission. Her group reenacts everything the lander will do on Mars, using a model of the lander that stays here on Earth. The engineers dream up all the possible things that could happen to the mission. They run test after test, practicing everything. One of the things they do to mimic operating the lander on Mars is work in the blind. Once we land on Mars, the only eyes we have are the eyes of the camera. So the only thing we see is what the camera shows us. We as a testbed team will go in 
and we'll set up the workspace. So we'll put rocks in specific spots or different spots and we'll have like different tilts on the lander or different tilts in the workspace. And then we'll take all of the imaging that the lander will take on Mars. Then we send those to the team and we say, okay, here you go. Here are all of your pictures. <laughs> uh, where do you want to put the instruments down? And so then they get together and they look at all the pictures and they discuss where the best place will be. The team writes all those sequences and then they send them to us, the testbed team, and then we go into the testbed and run them. And we can't tell them how it went. We just run all of their sequences, take more pictures, and then send it back to them with all of the data and say, here you go, this is what it looks like. They're in the blind, so then all they have is the pictures to go off of and then they can try to figure out what their next step is going to be. Whenever the team is working in the blind, they work during the day. We have to come in and run everything at night. The spacecraft it has its normal sleep-wake cycles that are the timed so that once we're on Mars, we want to wake up whenever Earth is within our sight so that we can transmit all of our data to the Mars Odyssey satellites and the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. So sometimes that's 2 a.m., sometimes it's 4 a.m., so spacecraft will wake up, we'll run all of our sequences, and then we'll beam all the data up to the satellite, and then we'll go back to sleep. When the team is working in the blind, we call ourselves little test bed gremlins, just because no one sees us. Just stuff happens in the night, and miraculously all the data's there in the morning. So that's good for them. Not so much for my sleeping, but... <laughs> One of our engineers came to us and said, I would like to blind the camera, cover the camera with something very dark, you know, so that it can't see anything. There's no light coming in. So we went in and we blinded the camera and I thought, that's funny, we're putting an eye patch on the lander. And I thought, oh my God, it's One-Eyed Willie. Haven't you ever heard of that guy? What, what's his name? The pirate guy, One-Eyed Willie. One-Eyed Willie. Yeah, he was the most famous pirate in his time. My dad told me all about him once. Dad'll do anything to get you to go to sleep. <laughs> no. See, One-Eyed Willie stole treasure once. It was full of rubies and, and emeralds and diamonds. Diamonds. Just because I'm a huge Goonies fan growing up. So I I asked him, I said, can I name it the One-Eyed Willie test? And he goes, sure. <laughs> so that's on all the test documentation for the test, but it just says One-Eyed Willie test. And obviously they're all controlled requirements and tests that we have to perform, but it's just kind of, it's nice to have some fun with it and just, um, I don't know, pull some of your childhood back into it. The test bed where the model of Insight sits is called the sandbox, but it's not filled with your everyday sand. In fact, it's reminiscent of One-Eyed Willie's treasure. And what it really is, is it's crushed garnet. It is a precious gemstone. If you ever Google raw crushed garnet, it just looks like reddish, brownish, gray rocks. And we use this crushed garnet because it's, it's dust-free. Uh, it doesn't create dust because it's so hard. We use it because it has the same kind of properties as the regolith, which is what we call Martian dirt or soil. You know, here we call it earth. The, you know, the ground is the earth, is not only the earth, but it's called earth. Whereas on Mars, we can't just call it Mars <laughs> because people would get really confused. Um, so we call it regolith. And the regolith has the same types of properties as other stuff here on, on earth, but the closest we could get without having dirt or dust in our indoor test bed is the crushed garnet. If InSight runs into any problems getting those instruments on the ground, engineers can use the test bed lander to troubleshoot. Once they've figured out what to do in the test bed, they'll send the commands to the lander on Mars. After InSight's instruments are placed on the ground and start operating, 
If no other problems arise, then Marlene's work is done. But she still has ambitions for more. I still want to be an astronaut. I've applied three times. I applied in 2008, 2012, and then 2016, because it's every four years. And I have all three of my rejection letters uh, framed at home. (laughs) And they're basically just reminders that I'm not done yet. I... I talk to a lot of people about my Tourette syndrome, and when I talk about that and I want to talk about wanting to be an astronaut, I often get asked, like, do you think they're going to let you be an astronaut? And I say, well, I don't know. They haven't told me no to my face yet, so don't tell yourself that you can't do something until someone else tells you, no, we're not going to let you in. Then you're, you know, and then there's other battles to fight. So I'm just going to keep trying. Next time on a mission. If you look at the history of exploration, there are many disasters along the way to those fabulous discoveries. If you're going to be in the business, you have to uh, pick yourself up and keep going ahead. (laughs) If you like this podcast, rate, like, and share us through your favorite podcast platform. We're hashtag NASA on a mission. Also check out NASA's other podcasts, Gravity Assist, Rocket Ranch, What's Up, NASA in Silicon Valley, and Houston, we have a podcast. They can all be found on NASA's podcast page. We're on a mission, a podcast of NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory.